I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Will you introduce yourself for the mic? Sure. Uh, my, I am, oh, geez. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm Rahman Alam, and I am a writer. Uh, what's funny is that I, I recently had to introduce myself on camera with someone and uh, it was scripted and I was asked to, s- to refer to myself as an author. And I said to the young, like very young person who was producing this thing, I said, look, I can't say that about myself and I don't know why I have such a particular hang up about that word, but I, we settled on writer. I'm a writer. Wait, why not author? I don't know. Doesn't it sound insane? Doesn't it sound like a weird thing to say about yourself? I don't know why, but I mean, obviously I am like that would pass muster with a fact checker, but somehow as a distinction to make for yourself, it seemed odd to me like or, it's or too not fancy? spoken, you know, like it's something you would see written, but you would never, would you ever say that to someone at a party? No. No, of course not. It sounds crazy. I'm Jordan Kistner, and you're listening to Thresholds, a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. As we've been working on this episode, featuring a conversation with the novelist Ruman Alam, I've been thinking a lot about something that Ruman points out about the relationship between wealth and liberty. At one point in our conversation, Ruman links the two. He says that to be rich is to have certain kinds of freedom, the freedom from certain anxieties or certain material wants, more free time and attention maybe, the freedom to see more art if that's your thing, or to focus on your family or see more of the world or direct your attention to what's going on in your community. Ruman's novels, there are three of them, probe the way that people waste this freedom, how money tends to bring a kind of myopia, how rarely it leads people to make a world where this kind of self-sovereignty is available for everyone. Equally, Ruman's novels, especially the most recent one, Leave the World Behind, explore the fact that there are certain things that even vast wealth can't free you from, Loneliness, existential dread, climate collapse, your own mortality. 
Leave the World Behind is about New Yorkers who want to ignore all this and just vacation in the Hamptons, but ultimately cannot. It was recently released as a Netflix film starring Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali, and produced by the Obamas. Actually, Ruman and I spoke the week of the premiere. His other novels include Rich and Pretty and That Kind of Mother, and a forthcoming novel called Entitlement. As always, you can find us online, drop us a note, and subscribe to the e-publication arm of this project at thisisthresholds.com. Here's Ruman Alam. I have a new book that I've just, just finished, um, but I was in the process of selling it earlier this year in, I think it was May, April or May. This is a book that I've been working on, gosh, at that point for a year and a half, at this point for two years. And I remember in the process of speaking to editors, saying to three of the editors who were interested that I felt really strongly that I was in a very creatively fertile period. And you probably know what I'm talking about. Like, it doesn't always feel that way, but there are moments that it does feel that way. And I was writing this novel and thinking about the next novel and thinking about, oh, I, I actually am really interested in trying to write a play. And then I had this idea where I was like, oh, maybe I should write a screenplay. It's very unusual for me to feel like the brain or the imagination is firing mm. in that way. And it's not associated with like the arrival of a new child or mm -hmm. some disruption. Not disruption sounds so judgmental, but you know, some sort of reordering of the family life. And you can imagine a lot of circumstances. You get a new job, you move to a new home, you know, you feel like destabilized or fresh or rejuvenated or whatever. This seemed to arrive from nothing. Hmm. It just seemed to happen. How did you notice it was happening? Or like, when did you notice it was I felt happening? like good about going to work every day, mm. you know, which is very, a very strange way to feel. As you know, you get to a place in a book where you're like, wow, I'm sick of this, you know? Um, and I was definitely sick of that book. You know, that's sort of part of the cycle of your relationship to your work. But I would go to my office at, you know, nine or 10. I get the kids out the door, work out, clean up the kitchen and go to work. And I would sit there. And a lot of times I didn't even have lunch. I would just work until three, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. That's a long time to do this kind of mental work without getting fidgety or, you know, looking at the garbage on the internet or, you know, wanting to go for a walk or watch a movie or something. But I was really inside of it. And so, and it, it just, it felt unusual. I, I think you're just, I don't know, you just couldn't tell that something was different. Yeah. Do you feel like that was the, the project or it was just some some function that was going on inside. I think it's something else. I think, I mean, yes, I think that like, especially as a project nears completion, you start to feel like, I was going to say it's like the last mile of a marathon, but how the hell would I know that? Um, but like, you know, so you, you rediscover something inside of you and you're like, oh, I'm almost at the end. I've, I've almost pulled this off and you feel sort of rejuvenated. But I don't think it was that. I think it's some other thing that I, you know, in some ways I think it might just be my age. I'm 40 six now. Um, and I think it's not uncommon for artists to have a kind of, that maybe you begin maturity at this, around this point in your life, if you have a long life. Um, 
And also there's, again, to mention my kids, my, my, my older son now is 14. My younger son is 11. They're still babies and you still have to like cut their French toast for them. However, the depth of their immediate need and their, and my, and their need for my vigilance, my sort of 24 seven vigilance has changed. And that has allowed my brain, you know, I just have a different mental bandwidth now. Yeah. Does that feel like it manifests purely in that kind of settledness of concentration or is there, I'm, I'm interested that you felt like, oh, maybe I want to write a play. Like yeah. if there's sort of a new kind of expansiveness. I, yeah, I think it's the latter because I was certainly focused on this particular book, but I was thinking about a lot of other things. And I also felt really, um, I know we have a friend in common, the novelist, Lynn Steger Strong, and I've had this conversation with her so many times about, you begin to feel in different periods, and it's just cyclical, I think, um, hungry to look at stuff, to look at art, to think about movies, to, you know, whatever it is, to listen to music in a slightly different way. And that suggests something to me about my relationship to what I'm trying to accomplish creatively or professionally. I guess creatively, not professionally. Um, and I guess I was just, maybe I'm just older and I could listen to that signal where mm. I, was, I was aware that like, oh, you actually have all these other things you want to do. And that's a good way to feel. This was this past May? Yeah, it was this past spring. And I think it's sort of ongoing. I'm still kind of feeling like, and it's funny because typically for me, so what I've just, what I've just finished is, will be my fourth book. It's typically been my experience that when I'm done, when the editor says, okay, we're going to send it to the copy editor, I feel um, kind of the way that you felt as an undergraduate when after the reading period was over, after the finals were done, and you're like, I just need to go home and, you know, sleep and do my laundry and just sort of let my brain heal. And I don't feel that way now, which is very unusual. Like, I finished this book and I... In the past, it's been the book's publication that allows me to see it as something apart from me and dead. And I think I'm already there and this book won't be published for, you know, nine months yet. The book is called Entitlement. And it's about the relationship between a 33-year-old woman and her octogenarian boss. And their relationship is not sexual, which I think is the first thing that comes to mind when I say that. It's not a Me Too book, but it is kind of romantic and intimate, their relationship. He is a philanthropist. He's a billionaire, an American office supply billionaire, um, giving away his fortune before he dies. And she goes to work for him at this private family foundation. And her exposure to him and his perspective on life and, of course, to his fortune precipitates a kind of mental undoing, but then ultimately like a kind of liberation. So it's a book about money, mm. um, principally. And 
So again, I don't know if it's that whatever that thematically there was something heated about the book and then one, you know, the final scene is kind of a scene of liberation and that when she was liberated on the page, I felt liberated to do something else mm. artistically. I don't, I, I don't have an answer to that. I don't have the kind of self-awareness to be able to answer that. Um, that's exciting. It feels like um, money and privilege and money and privilege as it, and sort of the expanses it creates between people feels like a theme in your work a little bit. Yeah, it I'm, feels very, like a I'm very interested in money. I'm very, because, you know, there's something we are, we, we accept that it is somehow uncouth to talk about money, which is actually like, a genius, a stroke of genius on the part of people who possess money to make it sort of taboo as something you talk about casually. This is kind of the the thesis of the book is that money operates in contemporary life the way that faith operated in life for a long time, if not, yeah, for a really long time. Money determines your ability to live, it determines what you, you know, what you're able to access. And it has become, in American life anyway, I think, synonymous or closely aligned with virtue. Hmm. We valorize people with money. And I think that we are on the precipice of a, a social reordering around that. I think that like money at this point in American life is so concentrated in the hands of so few that ultimately people will reject that, mm -hmm. I hope. And I think it's happening generationally. I think that like, you know, again, I'm 46. I think that people, you just kind of get complacent and accept that. But I think that like, f if you talked to 14 year olds today, they would say there's no ethical billionaire, right? Like they would say these things that have been ideas that we associate with like the far left, but I think that that's kind of increasingly conventional thinking. I'm always interested in, in writers who have a persistent curiosity or idea that they're interested in engaging with creatively over multiple projects, right? And I'm curious how you think you are thinking about money and class or your questions about it have sort of evolved from from book to book? I'm similarly kind of fascinated when an artist does the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say you've done the same well, thing over I, and over Well, I mean, again. I hope I haven't. But actually, I don't mind it when artists do. I mean, Agnes Martin did essentially the same thing over and over again mm -hmm. for once she landed on that, right? She, I think she was in search of it, and then she found it, and then she was like, oh, this... I, can, I will never exhaust this, and I don't think she did. Um, Anita Bruckner, who is one of my favorite novelists in the English language, basically every single one of her books is the same. And they, we're, we're sort of the richer for every one of them. Like, it's sort of fascinating to see her chase the same thing over and over again. And I always, I often wonder whether she's she was aware of that. Um, how is my, I don't know. These are unknowables. Like, how has my understanding of these subjects changed? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, you change as you get older. And also now I'm in possession of more money. So like, as a simple matter, like I have the liberty 
to write full time. I don't do anything else now. Um, which is very different than when I wrote my first book. And so of course my own relationship to having money, having some money, I am still a novelist, so let's not get carried away, but like to having some liberty is, is pretty extraordinary. Um, and again, it feels like something you're not supposed to talk about. Yeah, even just the, it's so interesting that having money and having liberty become intertwined in that sort of construction of a life. That's my, the last, the last life. line of my book is she was free. Uh-huh. You know, the idea that, and also free is such a funny word because we use free with respect to price colloquially, right? But like, so the idea that freedom is somehow the inverse of something that costs mm. and also freedom is sort of like the great American value and the thing we're sort of working in pursuit of or the thing that we tell ourselves is, you know, inherent to the American project, which is obviously, you know, more dream than reality. But am I free? Are you free? I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you have health and education and you are not worried about your children eating enough, then yeah, in some ways you are free. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I do, one thing that I was very conscious of, especially because the sort of turning point, and this is like truly a turning point, but doesn't feel like a threshold, so to speak, is um, having a su successful book, right? So that yeah. I had some, some financial stability. Um, but what I was very conscious of in that in that moment, because I was teaching at the time and I was, you know, doing what most writers do to, you know, I don't want to say scrape together because I, I did fine. I did fine. I was well paid for my books and I was able to teach and get paid, you know, decently and I was able to freelance and, you know, you can sort of put it all together. But once I became liberated from that and I didn't need to accept the teaching job that I didn't want that necessitated a lot of commuting and a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, just the work of teaching, I was very aware that I had some obligation to work because I think about all of the artists today and also throughout time who didn't have that liberty. It's like you have no excuse anymore. And so, and one thing that drives me crazy is when people are really, oh gosh, what's the word? you know, hypersensitive about creativity or something and production and they need like a cup of certain tea and indirect sunlight to be able to do their job. I'm always like, God, it's really not that complicated. You know, if you're delivering packages for FedEx, you don't say to yourself, well, you know, the sun's not quite right. So I think today I'm not really going to deliver anything and I'm just going to, you know, read or whatever. So I... I mean, maybe that goes hand in hand with feeling creatively fertile is that I forced myself to because I was like, you've got the one thing everybody wants. Which is time. Which is time, mm. you know. So you don't have a baby in the house anymore. Babies are time thieves. And you have time. You have time. So do something with them. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that I'm just thinking about in this conversation and in Leave the World Behind, which of course I was spending time with this week, um, we're talking about money as a thing that can 
can buy you time, which is a kind of freedom. And yet it feels so much like Leave the World Behind is about a book about what money cannot do. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if the world is ending. It can't do anything also, that really matters. It's also ending in the Hamptons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It can't do anything that really matters. It can't protect you. Nothing Nothing can protect you. It's not really a book about money. Um, and it's not really a book about disaster. It's funny because so the film is coming out right now. And so I've been talking about this book a lot. And... Um, I realized that I barely remember the book, right? It feels, it feels very, very distant for me in part because I just finished writing a new book and in part because I think that's how it should feel. Like it's from a previous time. It's from a previous point in my life. And I worked out whatever I had to work out and I'm done thinking about it in some fashion. Um, but it isn't a book about any of those things, even though it's talked about as being a book about disaster or about apocalypse or about dystopia or about, you know, what have you. It's a book about reality. It's a book about the fact that you don't ever know what's going to happen to you and nothing, literally nothing you do can protect you. And that is such a crazy thing to say, but it is like actually true. It's actually true. And we all know it. And we, you have to accept it. Otherwise, if you don't accept it, that's mental disease, right? That's mental, it's paranoia. Um, you have to live, but you have to make your peace with like the profound uncertainty of what it is to live. Yeah. Something I really love about Leave the World Behind is that all the quote unquote disaster, it's not actually happening. There's just a suggestion. There are things going wrong, but up until really near the very end, nothing really, like the, the worst thing that's happened is that like a kid throws up, which happens every day in the whole world, you know, like everything that happens in that book happens constantly. Right. And there is this suggestion, like the characters are maybe reasonably, totally reasonably starting to freak out that the world is ending and that maybe they're all about to die or, you know, whatever. But actually the things that are happening in the plot as it marches are not disastrous. But there, so there's this real um, tension between the, the way that like I mean, definitely there are like nods to climate change in that book. Like the world is ending all the time. And how are we, how anxious are we about that? How immediate do we feel that to be? And how powerful or powerless do we feel in the face of it? Um, And these characters happen to be experiencing a very intense version of the world isn't ending here, but it is ending and it's coming for us and there's nothing we can do. I also think that that's probably how people have always felt. And it doesn't seem like a fresh contemporary feeling, right? How did people feel in 1917? How did people feel during the American Civil War? And it's not like you have to like hunt for these vast disruptions in life. I think the difference is that during the American Civil War, for example, the people experiencing that violence as part of their daily reality were unaware of whatever was happening in Indonesia, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. we are simply so connected as a society in a way that is probably not how we were designed to work Mm -hmm. that it can begin to make you feel a little crazy. As you say, the things that happen in this book 
they could happen. You and I could, we could snip them all out and replace them with AP bulletins from today. And you would try to put all of those news items together. Oh, this actor died at home. Or, oh, this, you know, man shot his neighbor. Or this person, you know, this, this recall election is happening in this country. Or, you know, this place is on the brink of civil war. That's just reality. That's mm-hmm. just how the world works. And I think when you, when you look at it in, in total... It doesn't add up to anything. What it adds up to is baffling and unknowable. And it also makes you feel a little crazy, which is probably why people watch TV and look at Instagram and anesthetize themselves against reality. You know, you and me included. Like, how could you look at that without going crazy? The interaction between knowledge about what's going on in the world and money and panic (laughs) (laughs) um, feels very contemporary and American right now. Maybe not just American, right? But certainly American. Yeah, maybe not. Like I don't, I don't have a good handle on the sort of global attitude towards that, but like. Money, people who make money, especially like vast amounts of money, have a kind of crazed confidence. And maybe it's the confidence that allowed them to make the money in the first place, or maybe the con- this unearned confidence seeps in when they feel immortal or really powerful. A really good example of this is Howard Schultz deciding to run for president, right? Like, what a joke. You run a coffee company. Yeah, you run it well. You're a business guy. Um, But this notion, and this goes back to Bush, and I I wonder whether, I was too young to know if Reagan was sort of talked about this way as sort of like he had some kind of real world acumen that he would bring to this job of statesman. It's so insane. It's ridiculous. You don't choose a surgeon that way. You're not like, oh, I like the cut of your jib. You should do my heart surgery. No, you go to somebody who knows what they're doing. But rich people feel like they know everything. And that's weird. And rich people are also very panicked because I think there's a sense, like, as you're saying, there is this sense of weird, disproportionate panic among people who have a lot because I think they know they need to guard it and protect it. Um, So, as I said, I am optimistic that this is changing, but I do feel like this is a very particular moment culturally for us. And um, maybe analogous to, like, the 1920s, in this country or, you know, I don't know. It just feels like it's, um, I mean, you know, again, like a TV show like Succession, which is satire maybe. I don't know. I find that show sort of odious and stupid, but like satiric, but also valorized by an audience that doesn't understand that it is satiric and also maybe is unaware of the ways in which it's realistic that the American and indeed the global experience is to some in some way mitigated by the work of Rupert Murdoch, which is so unsettling that like, talk about making you feel crazy. Like once you think about that, you're like, wow, that's crazy. You know, he's just like a racist old crank who's like determining how people live. Like that's insane. Um, 
I don't know. I think, I hope, I'm hopeful that this is ending, but I don't know, maybe I'm delusional. How does that, how does, how does this set of thoughts about money sit with you as you become a person who has more money? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe that's what I'm trying to work out. But also, like, to be clear, I'm talking about the billionaire. And on the page in the new book, his name is Asher. He's a billionaire. And that's like a very specific, almost archetype, I guess, you know, like the, you know, like the kooky billionaire you would see in James Bond, you know, who's like, I'm going to invent my own reality or the way that DeLillo has used that figure, the sort of like figure with this vast fortune who has access to some secret about existence that the rest of us don't know. I don't know if you've ever read Zero K, but it's such a great book about the ultra wealthy using technology to live forever or to enter this state of suspended animation essentially and then to reawaken like in some unimaginable future so i mean it's like i'm also just dealing with archetype like it's like a fun meaty archetype to play with um but i don't have a billion dollars and if i did i think i would just i think it would just destroy i think it would destroy you i don't think it's i don't think we're meant to have that kind of liberty that kind of authority, that kind of power, that kind of the ability to, you know, I just don't think we're meant to be that person. Actually, and Henry James wrote about this too. The Golden Bowl is about this. Like you can't, it's not, you can't be that. It's not, it's incorrect. A person can't have all that. It doesn't, it short circuits you. Hmm. Yeah, I was sitting here thinking when you said a person can't, shouldn't have all that liberty made me think about the distinction between freedom from and freedom to, right? Like the, the, the billionaire insofar as he is free is free to do, to make, to have anything, right? That yeah. And then what buy. do they do with it? They're like, Oh, I'm going to go to space. Oh, I want to marry this like hot chick or, Oh, I'm going to like get this insane cosmetic surgery to address my receding hairline or I'm going to get really buff or I'm going to, you know, it's like, it's pathetic what people do with it. You know, mm -hmm. pathetic. When you think about the scale of what they could accomplish, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, to his credit, at least Bill Gates was like, we'll get rid of malaria. We'll find a way, you know? God bless. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. Uh, extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, what, what's interesting about that is it, is it really proves the scale of a thing that, it, that a billionaire oh, can do. That you right? can accomplish. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You think that, if Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos didn't, like, if they said one day, you know what we really need to do is we really need to get rid of HIV AIDS. How long would it even take them with that kind of money? Probably not long. Look how quickly these, look at, look at how quickly science uh, responded to COVID-19. Uh, absolutely insane what people are able to do. And absolutely insane that we do not, as a society, demand that we marshal our resources in service of these things. Mm -hmm. And instead, we have, like, public school kids who can't, like, graduate from eighth grade because they can't pay for their $2 school lunch. Insane. It, absolutely insane that we've allowed this society to work in this way. Yeah. 
Now that you are more time rich, more time time yeah, free. Yeah, that's that's where I'm rich. That is where I'm rich in time. That's yeah. pretty meaningful. Oh, it's unreal. It's such a gift. This is why people go on residencies, right? This is why you go to like Yaddo or something. Like, yeah, it's unreal. It's so great. I'm so, so satisfied and I'm so grateful and I'm so mindful of what a thing it is to possess. And I try to use it really. I really try to use it. You were saying earlier that you're in a phase where you want to take things in. Yeah. What are you, what are you craving in that, in that sense? Uh, you know, I'm craving like discomfort and I'm craving like um, stimulus it, and I'm, I'm like realistic about the ability of something to actually provide that, but I'm craving the experience of trying to deal with it. So I went to see a play on Broadway, Appropriate. Yeah, maybe just describe yeah. it briefly. Yeah, Appropriate is a play about a family dealing with the death of their patriarch and sort of like got a combative sister and a, a ne'er-do-well brother and a kind of blowhard brother and they're all trying to sort of negotiate with the family legacy it's uh, all I really need to say about it is that it's a bun- it's all the cast is all white and it and the family home is a plantation home so it, you know that tells you a lot about what the territory is intellectually and thematically and the truth is that I didn't love it I did not really the more I thought about it the more I think like I, I don't know how much it worked for me as a theater-going experience. And yet, I'm so glad I saw it. I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to take, you know, going to the theater is not cheap. And spending two hours on a, it's actually almost three hours, on a Friday night, like, what a gift, right? And it feels like it does something to you, to me anyway, to look at even something that doesn't fully succeed. Mm -hmm. At least, you know, according to whatever the metrics of your own taste are. To think about, how actors perform to think about how, you know, how lighting design reinforces what is happening thematically. This is not stuff that comes to bear on the work that I'm doing necessarily, but it's of interest. It, it does something to your mind to, to look and to think, right? Like that's the purpose of, like, it's so common. It's so popular now to have these conversations, cultural conversations about like, well, why are we teaching why does the university program need to teach Spanish literature? And it's like, well, well, why not? Like, what is the purpose of being a human being, right? Like, that's really what you're asking. And I'm going to, after this conversation, I'm going to go see Poor Things, the new um, Yorgos Lanthimos movie. So just the idea of just sweeping up whatever I can. And again, this is like, I'm... We're talking about time, but like also it costs money to see a movie. It costs money to see a play. It costs money to buy a book. You know, there are way, there are workarounds, but like I'm really aware of my own, like how privileged I feel and how lucky I feel to be able to like do this, to be able to knock off for the day and go to the Whitney or go to the Met and just, you know, absorb, you know, whatever I can I've been traveling a little bit for work. I was in Iowa City. And, you know, it's like you have a spare three hours, four hours, and to get to go to, like, the museum, the art museum that you've never been to, and just, like... That's a good art museum, too. It is a really good good art museum. It's small, but it's really good. You know, university towns often have superb art museums. 
really like, yeah, I'm talking to you as someone who lives in New York city, but you don't have to go to the Met to have an experience of something. I've, yeah, I, I went to the art museum when I was in Ann Arbor, also, also a great museum. Like, it's just, I don't know. I feel like hungry for it. And I couldn't tell you what it's doing for me mm. creatively, but like it, it, this would enrich anyone's life. You don't have to be an artist or a writer to have an enriching experience if you have an idle hour walking around the museum in Ann Arbor or Iowa City. Like, that's like, what a gift. Like, what a, you know, what a thing. And yeah, so it's been a good period for me, especially because I have been, I've read a lot this year and I've been less diverted by the book recently for whatever reason. I think How do you people mean go diverted through, by yeah, the book? Don't you know? I mean, I think people go through these periods. I, I read like 112 books this year. Almost all of them novels, but not all of them. And after a while, it's just like my brain is overstuffed. I can't like fit another book in there. I've negotiated with a lot of different writers' language and ideas, and I, I need to have a different kind of experience, you know? And so I think I'm in some ways, like, I, like I've been reading the same book for more than a week, which is very unusual for me, and I it's I can tell that I'm like, oh, I don't really want to be reading this book. I really want to be, like, having some other experience, you know? Does it, are you, are you consistently writing right now? Um, I keep a journal. That was the most successful New Year's resolution I've ever made. Um, and so that is a feeling of connection to producing something, some word on the page. Um, but no, I'm not really writing anything else at the moment, mm -hmm. but I, I can feel myself kind of storing it up, you know? Yeah. You're gathering. Yeah. That's a good, that's a really good phase. I feel like that phase is a luxury. Some people don't afford themselves or, or, or can't afford. Right. Yeah. Although I, I often push back against the idea of can't afford because, you know, you can get audiobooks for free from the library, you know, and I, you can, I, you know, cause I have kids, like I listen to audiobooks when I'm making dinner and doing all the other stupid, you know, grunt work of family life, especially, and that's actually kind of like, it's a win-win because then I'm reading a book, but also I can tune out their annoying bickering um, or, you know, just sort of like the irritations of being with crabby teens at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> so that's win-win. And I, I think there are a lot of ways to experience art, but I think we live in a culture that so valorizes production and work that we can forget to give ourselves that, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I turn on, okay, so it's like, not really art, I guess, but sometimes I turn on a TV show. Everyone does this, I think. And I play it, and I'm not even in the room watching it. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of listening to it and having some kind of experience of lifting me outside of, you know, the moment of that reality. I'm folding the laundry and listening to, like, you know, friends or something from the next room. Mm -hmm. I think it does something to you. It gets you out of your head, gets you thinking about, you know. Actually, when I teach, I often say you should watch an episode of a sitcom but not look at it. Hmm. Don't watch what's happening on screen. Just listen to it and see how the language dictates how the story works. You know, of course, there are sight gags. Like, I, I usually, I, I, I often tell people to watch Frasier because I think it's the best sitcom. But, and that's Ooh. a show that relies a lot on, like, visual gag, you know, and, like, it's farce, basically. But you can kind of understand how it works based only on experiencing its language, especially if you don't look at it. And that's kind of, that's instructive, it's, I, you know, I, I find it instructive. So I, I don't, 
I understand how I understand how reality makes you feel like you have no time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us don't, and I do. But I also am reluctant to simply accept that on faith and to not say like, okay, well, do you have more time than you think? Or are you spending time on things that are not serving you as a human being? Probably, we all are, you know. a sense for what the horizon is you want to be sort of heading toward with your next phase of work? Uh, creatively? Yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, I, I try really, I try not to think about the professional stuff, who will be publishing me or what will it look like or whatever, because that's not salient to what you're talking about, which is like the fundamental stuff. I really, I, I hope that my new book feels like an advancement. Feels to, It felt to me like an advancement when I was working on it. And I have some desire to push beyond that on the next book. I already kind of have a sense of what my next book will be. And I really want to write a comic Novel. I think that actually all of my work is really funny, although nobody. I I am amused by myself, but I wonder whether reader the extent to which readers are amused by me. Um, but I think the comic has really been overlooked in the past decade or so. Nothing is that funny, and that seems like a shame to me. Um, and I also I'm I'm thinking with my new book, and I haven't decided about writing a book that only has men in it. Hmm. Um, because I tend to be much more interested in women, if you can make such a blanket statement about yourself. And I think it would be an interesting challenge to only write about men. And like to only use a masculine pronoun, especially in a moment where culturally like our like long-held ideas about gender itself have been upended. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of curious about doing that. And I'm also curious about writing about gay men specifically, because it's something I've never written about. It's obviously closer to my own experience than anything I've written about in fiction to date. And I I don't know that I love a lot of contemporary literature that is explicitly or specifically about gay men. I don't know that I've seen a lot with a sense of humor or a sense of life. Maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't think that's entirely true. Brian Washington has a new book called Family Meal that I loved. I love love everything he writes. I think he's such a talented writer. Um, But there's something about that book's depiction of a milieu of like, queer, mostly men, but not only men, um, that really felt, I don't know, just felt so lovely to me. And I, I don't, that's not the sort of book I envision myself writing because I'm, I'm older than him. And it's just like, it's different. Um, 
but yeah, I don't know. I that's I tell myself that, but who knows? I mean, you in a weird way, I feel like you don't you you control, but don't control what you end up writing. Mm-hmm. You know. So you know, those are the 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 ideas going in, but then something something will come out. There. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, what what is this? And then you're like, oh, it's just the same old thing, the same old thing that is my intellectual hobby horse. Here it is again. You know, who knows? I mean, as long as you feel, I feel like the most important thing is that you feel like you're pushing in some way. Like there's some new idea or technical, like, I don't know, Lynn, our aforementioned uh, mutual friend, Lynn and I were talking about how maybe not every, maybe a novel can do one new thing at a time within the life of a writer. You know, like maybe... Every novel doesn't have to be, I don't know, like a stratospheric leap in every on every valence. Maybe a novel can can have one specific goal, technically or creatively. Right, and it's a it is a long trajectory. And when you look at Picasso, like that blue period stuff, I think sucks. I hate that stuff. The circus stuff, I'm like, no thanks. This is not interesting to me artistically. But like was imperative for him developmentally. And that's fine. Like, that's how it should be. It's a process, you know? And one of the other things that I say also with Lynn often is that, like, really the most you can hope for in any novel, which is composed of hundreds of sentences, is, like, six good sentences. You know? If you if your standard for yourself is higher than that, then you better fucking be Saul Bellow, right? Because he could do it. Mm. But I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who's writing right now who can do that. I don't know. Louise Erdrich, Jasmine Ward, like mm-hmm. Kazuo Shiguro. It's a small, small list of people who can like can, can over-deliver on that six-sentence promise. And you do have to, I think, have an attitude of like, well, I'll go back and I'll try again. Mm-hmm. And, and then maybe you'll do seven sentences. Yeah, maybe, if you get lucky. And maybe by the end of your life, you'll have nine sentences, you know, if you're really... Lucky. Thresholds is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Sign up for our newsletter, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.